Hello, this is Donna G. Welcome to The More the Merrier. Today's show will focus on thrillers and horror and a little bit of speculative fiction. Uh, with the month of October ending, I'm going to push that eerie, chilly feeling into November by focusing on some audiobooks that are available via your library courtesy of the Libby app. That's L-I-B-B-Y and the website is Libby.com. In the past, I featured audiobooks using the Overdrive um, app, but they're switching to Libby. So I thought, why not use this moment to let you know about the transition from Overdrive to Libby and also maybe treat you, if, if that's the, the word that I want to use, maybe treat you to some chills and things to think about. Now, just a heads up, uh, some of this content is definitely mature content and also because of the nature of horror and thrillers, um, this show will not be to everybody's taste. So please self-censor and uh, come back next week if you find this show is not up your alley. But for those of you who like this sort of fiction, let's get started. Gloria, written by Bentley Little. Read for you by John Perhala. Part 1. 1. Gloria James had not expected to see her mother again. But immediately following the funeral, her dead mom showed up at the house. For some reason, she looked not the way she had when she died, but the way she had in the 1980s when Gloria was a child. She was wearing one of those big-shouldered, bold-colored jackets a bright blue thing over a white blouse with large black polka dots. Her makeup was garish as well. Thick red lipstick, high purple eyeshadow, and her hair was blonder than Gloria ever recalled it being, so teased and sprayed that it made the head beneath it look somehow too small. Gloria did not remember the fashions of the 80s as being quite so hideous, although that was a strange and frivolous thought to be having when her dead mother was standing in the doorway, waiting to be let in. She glanced back at the guests, or mourners as they should probably be called, milling about in the living room, dining room, and kitchen. The house, she realized, still looked much the same as it had in the 1980s. The sofa and love seat in the living room had been switched out a couple of times since then, although the replacements had always had the same rough cloth texture and the same off-white color scheme. But the remaining furniture, the tables and lamps and bookcase, and even the books on the bookcase, were the same ones she'd grown up with. The only part of the house that was substantially different than it had been during her childhood was her own bedroom, which her mother turned into an office once Gloria had moved out. In the living room, her husband and sons were standing awkwardly next to the fireplace, forced to speak with people they barely knew. Not their forte. Her Aunt Ruth and Cousin Kate were handling all of the food, bringing out drinks from the kitchen and coordinating the potluck dishes on the dining room table. None of them were looking in her direction. "'May I come in?' her mother asked. Flummoxed, Gloria nodded. 
It occurred to her that vampires were supposed to have to ask in order to enter a house for the first time. That could explain how she was here, even though she had just been buried. But her mother had not asked the question in the intimidating way a monster would. She had done so in the annoyed, sarcastic manner she adopted whenever her daughter was not doing something she wanted her to do. Still, Gloria waited a moment, and when her mother did not bite her neck or start attacking the guests, mourners, Gloria closed the door behind her. Amidst all of the black and somber gray, her mother's gaudy wardrobe seemed rude, vulgar, and entirely inappropriate. No one commented on it, however. Benjamin and the boys welcomed her in. Several people nodded hello, and Kate handed her a paper plate, leading her over to the food table. No one recognized who she was. How is that possible? Gloria wondered. Maxine, from across the street, her mother's best friend since before Gloria was born, was here, as were old friends from work and from church, not to mention Aunt Ruth and Cousin Kate. They'd all known her mother at that age, and Aunt Ruth was her own sister. How could they not recognize her? Could this version of her mother have been so superseded in everyone's minds by the frumpy, elderly woman of later years that it had rendered her earlier self unidentifiable? Mom, Gloria said, approaching. Her mother turned toward her, as did everyone else. She saw the looks on all of their faces, shock, sadness, pity. Benjamin hurried over. Like the rest of them, he clearly thought that grief had addled her mind that stress had taken its toll, and she had somehow gotten confused, making her forget that her mother had died. He put his arms around her, and she was about to tell him the truth, when she saw her mom looking directly at her, and slowly shaking her head. For the first time, Gloria felt the emotion that she should have felt from the beginning. Fear. She looked away, peering into Benjamin's worried face, then glanced back. Her mother was scooping up a plate of tuna casserole, it's okay, Benjamin said. It's all right. She glanced over his shoulder at the boys. Both Bradley and Lucas looked frightened. Everyone else was purposely turned away, embarrassed for her. Sorry, she said. Habit, I just... She trailed off, not knowing where to go from there. Why don't you go and lie down, Benjamin suggested. So that's the first one down. How are you feeling? Um, that one doesn't sound so bad. And even for myself, uh, self-confessed scaredy cat, uh, that book does intrigue me. By the way, I haven't read any of these, um, read, I haven't listened to any of these uh, audiobooks that I'm playing today. So again, this is completely up to you whether you want to venture down the paths where these audiobooks lead. And again, they can be found on the Libby app. You can go to Libby.com and get started by entering your library card and then start borrowing. So let's move into the next one. Penguin Random House Audio presents The Apartment by S.L. Gray. Read for you by Nicholas Guy Smith and Fiona Hardingham. Chapter 1. Mark. The wine's gone to my head, I realize, as I sway into the kitchen to get another bottle. 
I'm at that perfect stage of tipsy when I feel padded and warm, forgetful. Carla's belting out her trademark laugh, that Wiccan cackle that's hearty enough to scare ghosts into corners. And somewhere, softly, tentatively, under Carla's vital bray, Steph is laughing too, a sound I haven't heard for weeks since. Trying to ignore the clot of history under the bottom shelf of the narrow pantry, I grab another bag of chips and reverse out into the kitchen again. Carla's date brought an expensive red wine tonight, telling me, as he pressed it into my hand, that we shouldn't drink it this evening, that we should save it for an occasion. But I'm sure it will go down just fine now. I open the chips and cram a handful into my mouth, then reach for the bottle on the overloaded counter, just as the new motion-activated floodlight in the backyard flicks on. Glancing up, I misjudge my grasp, and the bottle skittles down, smashing into a clutter of dirty glasses and sending a shatter of knives and forks wheeling off the plate on top of the pile. For just a second, the racket is too much. As it crescendos and settles, the shards and cutlery landing on my feet and the floor around me, I'm unable to move my eyes from the window, staring into the light, as if a floodlight will keep the monsters away. But it's more than a second, really, a lot more, because when the floodlight finally flicks off after revealing nothing, there's silence around me until I hear someone shifting in the kitchen doorway behind me. Mark? Steph's voice. You okay, honey? I shake myself out of it. Yes. Sorry, I just dropped something. Steph approaches me, treading with her bare feet across the hazardous floor. Don't, I say. You'll cut yourself. She ignores me, tiptoes to my side and looks out at the nothing in the dark yard. Did you see something? She asks softly. Someone. It must have been a cat. You sure you're okay? She says, squeezing my arm. I'm fine, I say. But I'm embarrassed by my reaction, so I grab the wine and guide Steph between the shards back through to the dining room, as if she needs my guidance. But the truth is, right now, next to this firm, strong young woman, I feel blind and vulnerable. Let's drink this while we still can. Steph glances at me. Sounds rather ominous. I meant, while we can still appreciate it. Yes, you should really leave it for a better time. I've forgotten the name of Carla's latest friend, who's standing at the music dock, putting in his phone and choosing some smooth, cynical track. You'll miss that famous chocolate on the palette. Famous chocolate, Carla says from her place at the table, artfully pretending that she hasn't heard the disaster in the kitchen. You mean notorious? 
That Divel's Fontaine is a tricksy wine for hipster dilettantes. No offence, Damon, darling. None taken, Carla Pumpkin. I sit down and watch Damon as he sidles back to the table, wondering what's between him and Carla. Does he know he's the latest in Carla's long series of boy toys? What does she get from him? What does he get from her? He must be twenty-five years younger than she is. But then, I pull myself up and remember. Remember, what is it that he remembers? These sample clips are oftentimes five minutes in length. Um, there's no rhyme or reason as to where they will cut off. The five-minute mark appears, and that's all the sample that you will get. So you either like the reader or what you've heard and borrow it, or you move on to something else. And we're moving on to something else right now. Macmillan Audio presents The Book Eaters by Sunyi Dean Narrated for you by Katie Eric For my mother, who has been a force of nature her entire life and for my dear friend John O'Toole, who is something of a jarrow Act 1. Dusk. Chapter 1. Devon by day. Present day. We have just begun to navigate a strange region. We must expect to encounter strange adventures, strange perils. Arthur Matchin, the terror. These days, Devon only bought three things from the shops. Books, booze and sensitive care skin cream. The books she ate... The booze kept her sane, and the lotion was for Kai, her son. He suffered occasionally from eczema, especially in winter. There were no books in this convenience store, only rows of garish magazines. Not to her taste, and anyway, she had enough books to eat at home. Her gaze skipped across the soft porn, power tools and home-living publications down to the lower strata, where children's magazines glowed pink and yellow. Devon ran short, ragged nails across the covers. She thought about buying one for Kai, because he seemed to like reading that kind of thing at the moment, and decided against it. After tonight, his preferences might change. She walked to the end of the aisle, linoleum squishing beneath her heel boots, and set her basket at the checkout. Four bottles of vodka and a tub of skin cream. The cashier looked at the basket, then back at her. Do you have ID? Pardon? Do you have any ID? He repeated slowly, as if to someone hard of hearing. She stared. I'm 29, for Christ's sake. I looked every year of it too. He shrugged, crossed his arms, waiting. Wasn't much more than a kid himself. At most, 18 or 19, working in the family shop and likely trying to follow all the rules. Understandable, but she couldn't oblige him. Devon didn't have any ID. No birth certificate, no passport, no driver's licence, nothing. Officially, she didn't exist. Forget it. 
Devon shoved the basket at him. Bottles clinking. I'll get a drink somewhere else. She stalked out, annoyed and flustered. Hordes of teenagers bought booze from other corner shops all the time. It was a daily occurrence around here. That someone would choose to card her so clearly an adult was ridiculous. Only after she'd crossed the badly lit street did she realise that she'd left without buying the skin cream. It was a small failure, forgetting the lotion, but she'd failed Kai so constantly in many different myriad ways that even this tiny mistake was sufficient to wring her insides with fresh anger. She considered going back for it, then checked her watch. The time was pushing 8pm, already in danger of running late. Besides, eczema was nothing compared to his hunger. Much more important to feed him. Newcastle-upon-Tyne was a pretty enough city, if a little rowdy for Devon's liking. This time of year, the sun set at 4pm, and the sky was already fully dark, the lamps abuzz. The lack of ambient light suited her mood. Compulsively, she checked her phone with its short list of contacts. No texts, no calls. She slunk past a row of decrepit terraces. Passers-by drifted up and down the pavement. A tight knot of people huddled outside one of the houses, drinking and smoking. Music leaked through curtainless windows. Devon took a left off the main street to avoid the crowds. There were so many things to remember when she was out and around humans. Feigning cold was one of them. Thinking of it, she drew her coat tight around her, as if bothered by the chill. Walking with sound was another. She scuffed her feet with deliberate heaviness, grinding gravel and dust beneath her heels. Big boots helped with the plodding tread, made her clunky and stompy like a toddler in adult wellies. Her vision in darkness was another awkward one. Having to remember to squint. The Book Eaters might be one that I might venture into. Uh, Devon is part of the family, an old and reclusive clan of book eaters. Her brothers grow up feasting on stories of valor and adventure, and Devon, like all other book eater women, is raised on a carefully curated diet of fairy tales and cautionary stories. But real life doesn't always come with happy endings, as Devon learns when her son is born with a rare and darker kind of hunger, not for books, but for human minds. Let's continue. Grio Audio presents an unabridged recording of The Good House by Tanana Reeve Du. Narrated by Robin Miles. This book is copyrighted 2003 by Tanana Reeve Du. This recording is copyrighted 2003 by Recorded Books, producer and publisher of Griot Audio. Angela Toussaint's grandmother's house is so beloved of the local townspeople that they call it the good house. Yet, Angela had hoped that her grandmother's famous healing magic could save her failing marriage while she and her family lived in the old house during the summer of 2001. Instead, an unexpected tragedy ripped her family apart. When Angela begins to pick up the pieces of her life, she becomes aware that she's not the only one to have suffered a shocking loss. Could these incidents be related? Are they linked to a terrifying entity Angela's grandmother confronted in 1929? And now, 
the good house. In Eden, who sleeps happiest? The serpent. Derek Walcott. Prologue. Sacagawea, Washington, July 4th, 1929. The knocking at her door early Thursday afternoon might have sounded angry to an ear unschooled in the difference between panic and a bad mood, but Marie Toussaint knew better. The knocking hammered like a hailstorm against the sturdy door Marie Toussaint's husband had built with wood he'd salvaged from a black walnut tree knocked over in the mudslide. The mud's recent wrath had left their two-story house untouched, but sprays of buckshot fired at the house during cowardly moments, usually at night, had pocked and splintered the old door. The mere sight of the damaged door had always made her angry, and Marie Toussaint no longer trusted herself when she was angry. From the ruckus of the door, there might be two or three people knocking at once. Before Marie could look up from the piano keys that had absorbed her while she tried to command her fingers through Beethoven's sonate pathétique, John swept past her, his thick hand wrapped around the butt of his shotgun. He kept his gun leaning up against the wall in the kitchen like a whisk broom, ready for finding. Get in the wine cellar. Latch the door, he said. Maybe it's Dominique, John. Hell, it is. She knew he was right. They had driven Dominique to the church an hour ago in the wagon. Her daughter would never walk back home by herself, and not just because of the miles' distance between their house and the church that had accepted Dominique for summer Bible classes in an unprecedented gesture of goodwill since the slide. Today, Dominique was at a special Independence Day class, where she was no doubt learning about how much God had blessed America. Marie had lectured Dominique on the dangers, though. She was a smart, obedient girl. If she walked home alone... She might become a target to those who disapproved of the church's decision to treat her like any other young citizen, despite her brown skin. These visitors had nothing to do with Dominique. John crept like a cat near the door, as if he expected it to fly open despite its locks. Very few townspeople in Sacagawea locked their doors during daylight hours, or even at night for the most part, but peace of mind was a luxury Marie and her husband could ill afford. Watching her husband's caution, Marie felt knowledge bubble up inside of her. She sensed the ever-knowing voice of her guiding esprit, a voice she had first heard when she was six. That voice had guided Marie well in the twenty-five years since. Her esprit had led her from New Orleans to Daytona to San Francisco to Sacagawea, this riverfront town hidden in the Washington woodlands. As a girl, Marie had named her esprit Fleurette, because that was her grand-mère's name, and therefore must contain some of her wisdom, she decided. And Fleurette was a wise one indeed. Fleurette did not want Marie to open the door. Her burning ears told her so. "'Who's there?' John called out in a big barking voice that stopped the ruckus cold. "'That you, Red John?' A reedy man's voice came back through the door. Marie recognized Sheriff Kerr's voice, though he sounded unusually nervous and winded.
Catherine Teagan Books and Harper Audio present The Weight of Blood by Tiffany D. Jackson. Performed by J.D. Jackson, Sarah Molo Christensen, Joy Nash, Christopher Salazar, and Karen Molina White. This one is for me. For the little girl in pigtails who went running for the TV whenever her favorite horror movie came on, doing the absolute unimaginable when so many doubted her dreams, including herself. Look at you now, Tiff Tot. Look at you now. Part 1 1 Maddie did it. Episode 1. It all started with the rain. The sworn testimony of Mrs. Amy Lecter for the Springville Massacre Commission. We heard the crash first, right before the lights went out. We don't live too far from the country club. Our son Cole even worked there during the summers as a caddy. Made good money, too. Anyway, next we smelled the smoke and ran out onto the porch. I could just make out them flames over the treetops. That club must have been brined in gasoline. It lit up the sky purple. My husband, George, jumped in his truck to head on over there while I sat on the porch and waited. And waited. And waited. Two whole hours I waited to hear something. Had no idea what was going on. Phones weren't working. Just as I was finna to head over there myself, I see Cole walking out the dark, limping down our driveway, eyes wide like he saw the face of God. I was so relieved that he was all right that I ran up and gave him a great big hug. But he was soaking wet, like he done grabbed his tux right out the wash and threw it on. It wasn't until I stepped away that I noticed red all over my robe and started screaming. We took him down to the hospital. Not a scratch on him, but they transferred him to the mental ward on account that he wouldn't talk. Still won't talk much. And my Cole, he was a talker. From day one, we couldn't get him to shut up if we tried. He was the tattletale of the family, always ripping and running. Now he barely moves. Barely blinks. Just stares off at nothing. Only two kids survived prom night at that country club. Cole was one of them. They say when you go through something like that, your instincts kick in. So his mind must have told him to come on home. He walked over two miles through the mud with one shoe, covered in the blood of other children. When I asked him what happened, he just kept mumbling, Maddie did it. May 1st, 2014. First period. Jim. Maddie Washington tugged at the bottom of her green gym shorts, eyeing the dark gray clouds circling above Springfield High School's racetrack. Her nose twitched. It was going to rain. Jules Marshall! Coach Bates bellowed. Here! Jules yawned. Wendy Quinn! Here! Allie Kruger! Here! The girls gathered by the far fence using it to help them balance as they stretched their calves and hamstrings. 
Maddie nibbled her thumbnail down to a bloody stump, simultaneously touching the roots of her bone-straight hair, feeling for its silky smoothness. Coach, are you really going to make us do this? Charlotte McHale whined, stomping in place like a toddler. Coach Bates checked off her attendance list without looking up. You ladies need a run. Do those muscles some good. The girls grumbled in response. Coach stuffed the clipboard in her armpit, her long gray hair tucked under a Springville Pirate softball hat. Don't you want to stay nice and thin for your... CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. Stream CIUT at www.ciut.fm. Before the break, you heard from Tiffany D. Jackson's book, The Weight of Blood. And that is about a young biracial girl who is being bullied in her school. So the issue there is a mix of horror and racism. And uh, it might remind you of another classic movie um, of a girl going to a prom. Up next, I have a couple of uh, books in this horror-thriller genre that also deals with the horror of racism. At this point, I would normally say sit back and relax, but not this time, not with these audiobooks from Libby, the app that lets you use your public library card to download and listen to all sorts of media. I'm focusing on audiobooks and the thriller horror aspect, pushing Halloween into November. Recorded Books presents Ring Shout or Hunting Ku Kluxes in the End Times by P. Gele Clark. Narrated by Cheney Waits. Notation 15. Interview with Uncle Will, age 67. Transliterated from the Gullah by Emma Krauss. Hereafter, E.K. There's a shout we do about old Pharaoh and Moses. The Lord part the Red Sea and all his people run through. Old Pharaoh thinking to follow, but when he do, them waters fall in on him. So we say, Pharaoh's host got lost, and shout about all the fussing and crying he must have done to see it. I was a boy when Union soldiers come tell us about the Jubilee. Always imagined them blue uniforms was like the waters falling in on old Pharaoh. Cause wicked massa and missus, them sure enough did some wailing and fussing to see us go. Laughter. Chapter One. You ever seen a clan march? We don't have them as grand and making like you might see in Atlanta. But there's clans enough in this city of 50-odd thousand to put on a full march when they get to feeling to. This one on a Tuesday. The 4th of July. 
which is today. There's a bunch parading down 3rd Street, wearing white robes and pointed hoods. Not a one got their face covered. I hear them first clans after the Civil War hid behind pillowcases and flower sacks to do their mischief, even blackened up to play like they colored. But this clan we got in 1922 not concerned with hiding. All of them, men, women, even little baby clans, down there grinning like picnic on a Sunday. Got all kinds of fireworks, sparklers, Chinese crackers, sky rockets, and things that sound like cannons. A brass band competing with that racket, though everybody down there, I swear, clapping on the one and the three. With all the flag waving and cavorting, you might forget they was monsters. But I hunt monsters, and I know them when I see them. One little Ku Klux dead, a voice hums near my ear. Two little Kluxes dead, three little Kluxes, four little Kluxes, five little Kluxes dead. I glanced to Sadie crouched beside me, hair pulled into a long brown braid dangling off a shoulder. She got one eye cocked staring down the sights on her rifle at the crowd below as she finishes her ditty, pretending to pull the trigger. Click, 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 click. Stop that now. I push away the rifle barrel with a beaten-up book. That thing go off and you liable to make me deaf. Besides, somebody might catch sight of us. Sadie rolls big brown eyes at me, twisting her lips and lobbying a spitty mess of tobacco onto the rooftop. I grimace. Girl got some disgusting habits. I swear, Maurice Boudreaux. She slings her rifle across blue overalls too big for her skinny self and puts hands to her hips to give me the full Sadie treatment, looking like some irate yellow gal sharecropper. The way you always worrying... Is it 25 or 85? Sometimes I forget. Ain't nobody seeing us way up here but birds. She gestures out at buildings rising higher than the telegraph lines of downtown Macon. We up on one of the old cotton warehouses off Poplar Street. Way back, this whole area housed cotton coming in from countryside plantations to send down the Okmulgee by steamboat. That fluffy white, soaked in slave sweat and blood, what made this city? Nowadays, making warehouses still hold cotton, but for local factory... Macmillan Audio presents Sorrowland by River Solomon Read by Karen Chilton Kingdom Planty. One. The child gushed out from twixt Vern's legs, ragged and smelling of salt. 
Slight he was, and feeble as a promise. He felt in her palms a great wilderness, such a tender thing as he could never be parsed fully by the likes of her. Had she more strength, she'd have limped to the river and drowned him. It'd be a gentler end than the one the fiend had in mind. Vern leant against the trunk of a lob lolly and pressed the child naked and limp to her chest. His trembling lips lay right where the heart-shaped charm of a locket would be if she'd ever had a locket. So that's how it's gonna be, hmm? Win me over with lip wibbles? She asked, and though she was not one to capitulate to bids for love, this baby had a way about him that most did not. There was courage in his relentless neediness. He would not be reasoned out of his demands. Vern reached for the towel next to her, with what gentleness she could muster, and it wasn't enough to fill a thimble. She dragged rough Terry over the baby's mucky skin. Well, well, she said, cautiously impressed. Look at you. Vern's nystagmus and resultant low vision were especially troublesome in the waning light, but pulling her baby close lessened the impact of her partial blindness. She could see him full on. He was smaller than most newborns she'd had the occasion to handle and had inherited neither her albinism nor her husband Sherman's yellow-bonedness. His skin was dark, 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 and Vern found it hard to believe that the African ancestry that begot such a hue had ever once been disrupted by whiteness. The only person Vern knew that dark was Lucy. Viscous cries gurgled up from the child's throat, but died quickly on the bed of Vern's skin. Her flesh was his hovel, and he was coming to a quick peace with it. His bones were annals of lifetimes of knowledge. He understood that heat and the smell of milk were to be clung to, or else. It was a shame such instincts would not be enough to save him. As much as Vern had made a haven here these last few months, the woods were not safe. A stranger had declared war against her and hers, his threats increasingly pointed of late. A gutted deer with its dead fawn fetus curled beside, a skinned raccoon staked to a trunk, body clothed in an infant sleep suit, and everywhere, everywhere, Cottontails hung from trees, necks and nooses, and feet clad in baby booties. The fiend's kills, always maternal in message, revealed a commitment to theme rarely seen outside a five-year-old's birthday party. Another girl might have heeded the warnings to leave the woods, but Vern preferred this obvious malevolence to the covert violence of life beyond the trees. To be warned of bad happenings afoot was a welcome luxury. People might have followed Vern off the compound when she'd fled if there'd been a fiend there, discarding dead animals as auguries. Hush now, Vern said, then, thinking it was what a good ma'am would do, sang her babe a song her ma'am used to sing to her. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. Don't you mourn? Oh, Mary, don't you weep? Don't you mourn? Pharaoh's army got drowned. 
Oh, Mary, don't weep. Even though it was a spiritual, it wasn't a song about Jesus direct, which suited Vern because she hated music about the Christ. Dreamscape presents The Devil in Silver by Victor Laval. Narrated by the author. The Devil in Silver. For Gloria Loomis, who I love like family. The fear, the horror that I had of madness before is already greatly softened, and although one continually hears shouts and terrible howls, as though of the animals in a menagerie. Despite this, the people here know each other very well and help each other when they suffer crises. Vincent van Gogh. Volume 1. Intake. Chapter 1. They brought the big man in on a winter night when the moon looked as hazy as the heart of an ice cube. It took three cops to wrestle and handcuff him, they threw him in their undercover cruiser and drove him to the New Hyde Mental Hospital. This was a mistake. They shouldn't have brought him there, but that wasn't going to save him. When they reached the hospital, everyone got out. The big man refused to walk. The three cops mobbed around him, trying to intimidate, but to the big man, they just looked like Donald Duck's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, a bunch of cartoons. It didn't help that they were dressed in street clothes instead of blue uniforms. Dewey and Louie walked behind the big man, and Huey stayed up front. The big man's hands were cuffed behind his back. Dewey and Louie pushed him like tugboats guiding a barge. One good shove, and he floated toward the double doors of the building. The lobby was so empty, so quiet, that their footsteps echoed. Newhide looked like a low-rent motel. Bland floral print cushions on the couches and chairs, the walls a lackluster lavender. There were no patients waiting around, no staff members on hand, not even an information desk. But Huey, the lead cop, knew where he was going. The big man frowned at the decor and the empty seats. He thought they were taking him to a lockup. What the hell kind of place was this? He got so confused, his feet stopped moving. So Dewey and Louie gave him another shove. They reached the far end of the lobby and found a hallway. The cops turned right, but the big man went left. It might have looked like an escape attempt, except that the big man stopped himself after two paces. So confused, he actually turned back to look for them. Huey, Dewey, and Louie were watching him now to see what he would do. They were relaxed because they knew he could do nothing. Huey raised his right hand. He wore a chunky silver diver's watch that looked expensive, even under the hospital's terrible fluorescent lights. He beckoned, and the big man stepped closer to them. It was quiet enough that the cops could hear him lick his dry lips. Now this guy was big, but let's put it in perspective. He wasn't Greek mythology-sized, wasn't tossing boulders at passing ships. He wasn't even Green Mile-sized, one of those human giant types. He stood six foot three, and weighed 271 pounds. And if that doesn't sound big to you, then you must be a professional wrestler. The dude was big, but still recognizably human. Beatable. Three smaller men, like these cops, could take him down together, just to get that straight. 
The big man returned to his captors without a word, and once again they all moved in the same direction. The hallway was clear and empty, just lavender walls boxing in a thin runway of industrial carpet. But the big man could see that the runway ended at a big old door, heavy like you'd find on a bank vault, unmovable. This was no Motel 6. His footsteps faltered, but this time the cops weren't going to let him wander off. Dewey yanked that big boy backward by the handcuffs. His shoulders popped in their sockets, and his face went hot with pain. Now he's scared, the lead cop said. They reached the door. A small white button sat in the wall. Huey pressed it and kept his finger on the button. The buzzer played on the other side of the door and sounded like a duck's quack, as if Huey was throwing his cartoon voice. The secure door featured a window the size of a cereal box. With his finger still steady on the buzzer, Huey peeked through it. Just break the glass, Dewey said. He seemed to be joking, but he hadn't smiled. Huey clonked the sturdy silver face of his diver's watch against the window. This next one has some trigger warnings, which the author addresses. I just wanted to give you a heads up to expect that. It also contains strong language. Listening Library presents Hell Followed With Us by Andrew Joseph White. Read for you by Sean Dasani, Graham Halstead, and Avi Roque. For the kids who sharpen their teeth and bite. AJW. Letter from the author. If you set a fire, you're going to inhale some smoke. I'm all for setting fires and burning whatever will catch flame, but I encourage you to be careful when you pour the kerosene. This book contains depictions of graphic violence, transphobia, domestic and religious abuse, self-injury, and attempted suicide. Hell Followed With Us is a book about survival. It is a book about queer kids at the end of the world trying to live long enough to grow up. It is a book about the terrible things that people do in the name of belief and privilege. So if any of the topics above will burn you, I respect your decision to step away. Actually, I admire you. I've never been so careful. But if you've stepped even closer, close enough that you can feel the heat on your cheeks. I wrote this book for a few reasons. Because I wanted more stories about boys like me. Because I was angry. Because I still am. But mainly... I wanted to show queer kids that they can walk through hell and come out alive. Maybe not in one piece, maybe forever changed, but alive and worthy of love all the same. That's what you'll find here. Terrible things. Survival, love, and a future worth fighting for. Sharpen your teeth. Take up your fire. And let's do this. Yours, Andrew. And thus the Lord spoke to us. For again we have failed him. Again he regrets his creations. So again the earth must flood. 
and we have done his holy work. Amen. Hi, Reverend Father Ian Clevenger. Before releasing the flood virus on Times Square. Be not afraid. Joshua 1 verse 9 King James Version Benjamin Chapter 1 You will return to the earth, for out of it you were taken. For from dust you were made, and to dust you will return. Angel Prayer Here's the thing about being raised an angel. You don't process grief. Grief is a sin. Loss is God's design, and to mourn the dead is to insult his vision. To despair at his will is sacrilege. How dare you betray his plan by grieving what was always his to take? Unfaithful, disgusting heretic. You should be hung from the wall so the non-believers will know what's coming for them. Romans 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. So the image of dad's body burns into the folds of my brain. Writes itself between the grooves of my fingerprints. And I swallow it down until I choke. Angels cut out the parts of us that remember how to cry until we can't. We learn to mask the grief, to pack it away for later, later, later. Until eventually, we just die. The way I see it, I don't have to worry. If the angels get their way, all this grief will be his problem soon enough. And if they don't... God, please don't. I'm running. Dad's blood is in my mouth. Brother Hutch shot him once in the chest to stop him and once in the head to kill him. Brother Hutch calls for me. We can do this the easy way. This last one is from a book of short stories by Nalo Hopkinson. So it's a bit of folklore and vampires and horror and I wanted to end with it so that you could also check out her other works um, of speculative fiction. Nalo Hopkinson. Tantor Audio, a division of recorded books, presents Skinfolk Stories by Nalo Hopkinson. Narrated by Bonnie Turpin. Riding the Red Throughout the Caribbean, under different names, you'll find stories about people who aren't what they seem. Skin gives these skin folk their human shape. When the skin comes off, their true selves emerge. They may be owls. They may be vampiric balls of fire. And always, whatever the burden their skins bear, once they remove them, once they get under their own skins, they can fly. It seemed an apt metaphor to use for these stories, collectively. She never listens to me anymore. I've told her, and I've told her. Daughter, 
you have to teach that child the facts of life before it's too late. But no, I'm an old woman. And she'll raise her daughter as she sees fit, ma. Thank you very much. So I try to tell her little girl myself. Listen, dearie. Listen to grandma. You're growing up, hmm? Getting dreamy? Pretty soon now you're going to be riding the red. And if you don't look smart, next stop is Wolfie's house. And Wolfie, doesn't he just love the smell of that blood? Oh, yes. Little girl was beginning to pay attention, too. But, of course, her saintly mother bustled in right then, sent her off to do her embroidery, and lit into me for filling the child's head with ghastly old wives' tales. Told me girl is too young yet. There's plenty of time. Daughter's forgotten how it was, she has. All growed up and responsible now. But there's more things to remember than when to do the milking, and they just sweep the dust from the corners. Just as well they went home early that time, her and her little one. Leave me be here alone with my cottage in the forest and my memories. That's as it should be. But it's the old wives who best tell those tales, oh yes. It's the old wives who remember. We've been there. And we lived to tell them. And don't I remember being young once and toothsome and drunk on the smell of my own young blood flowing through my veins? And didn't it make me feel all shivery and nice to see Wolfie's nostrils flare as he scented it? I could make Wolfie slaver, I could, and beg to come close, just to feel the heat from me. And oh, the game I made of it! The dance I led him. He caught me, of course. Some say he even tricked me into it. And it may be their right. But that's not the way this old wife remembers it. Wolfie must have his turn, after all. That's only fair. My turn was the dance. The approach and retreat. The graceful sway of my body past his nostrils, scented with my flesh. The red hood was mine to catch his eye. And my task it was to pluck all those flowers, to gather fragrant bouquets with a delicate hand, an agile turn of a slim wrist, the blood beaten at its joint like the heart of a frail bird. There is much plucking to be done in the dance of riding the red. But Wolfie has his own measure to tread, too, he does. First, slip past the old mother, so slick. And then, oh, then, isn't Wolfie a joy to see? His dance is all hot breath and leaping flank, piercing eyes to see with and strong hands to hold. And the teeth, ah, yes, the biting and the tearing and the slipping down into the hot and wet. That measure we danced together, Wolfie and I. And yes, I cried then, down in the dark with my grandma, till the woodman came to save us. But it came all right again, didn't it? That's what my granddaughter has to know. It comes all right again. I grew up, met a nice man, reminded me a bit of that woodman. Thank you so much for tuning in to The More, The Merrier with Donna G. 
I hope you, if not enjoyed, appreciated uh, the show and that you'll check out some of these audiobooks in your local library using the Libby app. And again, the samples that I played are the samples that you will hear if you check out these books. As usual, you can catch me on my socials at TMTM with Donna G on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On Instagram, I have a link tree so that you can listen to the podcast in uh, various ways besides that of www.ciut.fm. And I'm bidding you farewell for this week with Alan Hobbins and Chopin's Impromptu in A-flat major, Opus 29.